I built a new garden shed at the end of last summer. Um, our garden shed had been rotting, and it was time to tear it down. And I love having a shed because then my shed gets dirty instead of my garage. And so, um, and I bought a kit from 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 Costco. This is the front page of it. It was, it was several hundred pages to put this thing together. But um, I, I barely got it done. If it hadn't been for the help of, of Greg uh, Johnson, my son-in-law, I don't think I would have gotten it done. But we gradually tore it down over the summer, gradually got rid of that, and gradually started to build the thing until um, uh, it was still not done even into the fall. And um, there was one nice day, um, a nice Monday morning. I had to be here at noon, and I was I, had, I took me to the airport early. I rushed home. I put the last shingles on the roof. I, I put the last nail in and just enough time uh, to get into the shower, get cleaned up for work, and the weather turned, and it got cold. And so the thing was done, but it wasn't painted. The inside was a mess. I just took all the junk that was in the garage and threw it in there, and all winter it sat there disorganized and unfinished until finally this spring we had family coming in the middle of June, and, uh, and Greg and I got out there, and we, we painted it as quick as we could. Uh, it still needs touching up. It's still not done on the inside, but you know, at least we got it so that it looked okay. But it still nags at me that it's still on that list of unfinished home projects. Anybody here not have an unfinished home project. I'll ask it that way. One person. Yay. Okay, good. Um, there's just always something, aren't isn't there? There's always just something or lots of somethings waiting to be done. Some of those unfinished projects would make great donations to the garage sale, I might add. But anyway... Um, there's always something that needs to be done, and there's always those ideas for something new and, and, and that might be fun, that would be great to have, but there always seems to be something that there's not quite enough either money or time uh, to spend on it. Sometimes we have the money and not the time, and sometimes we might have the time and not the money. And it seems that our expectations keep getting higher. It seems like with the advent of HGTV and Pinterest, uh, uh, that the, the ideas are overwhelming us. And, and the things that we absolutely have to do, that it's a crime in Naperville to not have your house in such a condition that it could sell the next day if you put it on the market. And so we just have this overwhelming sense of must finish, must remodel, must update. And it can overwhelm us, it can draw us in, it can distract us. It even can cause us to obsess about it way too much. And then we are one of those people that complains about how hard our life is because our kitchen's being remodeled. You don't complain when you have the privilege of improving your home and making it beautiful and we get wrapped up in this. And I confess I'm on the list as well. The people of Haggai's day were a bit obsessed with their houses too. In fact, we learn in that day from verse 4 that paneling was cool. So maybe it was sort of a, you know, maybe the, mid, maybe the 50s here were a throwback to that time. I don't know. But seriously, in their attention to their homes, they had neglected the house of God, the temple uh, where God dwells. They don't even realize that the difficult time that they've been having, that the agriculturally things aren't going so well and economically things aren't going so well for them. They don't even notice that this is actually coming to them as a discipline from God. Verse 9 says this, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. 
Now, unlike the other minor prophets that we've been looking at this summer, Haggai really isn't quite as doomy and judgment and uh, day of the Lordy as we've been seeing with some of the other prophets. The people are undergoing some painful and uncomfortable circumstances, but they are not being devastated. But God is getting their attention through this prophet. And not just because God wants a nicer house than they have. God longs to be honored and magnified and to be fully present with his people. He longs to be fully present with his people, to be worshipped, and therefore to bless his people. All of the Old Testament stories, the story of God calling his people back to himself, and in the Old Testament era, the temple was the dwelling of God, the focus of worship in holy God. And so as we dig into this short little book today, we are reminded that what we've reminded each week, that the message of the miners usually seems to major on doom until we see it as part of this bigger message of what God's doing and that our God is a loving God who is calling people back to holy and hopeful living aligned with his good purposes. At first reading, it may seem that this is really all this little book is about. It's short. Like I said, it's just two chapters. Rose just read the first chapter. It's only slightly longer than Obadiah, which is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a time when the people of restoration, of the restoration, they've been called back from Babylonian captivity. They're, they're called to rebuild the temple. And, and, and through this call of the prophet, they do. And so it's kind of a happy little story. But as we push into chapter 2, we see there's a little bit more going on here. In the second chapter, the focus of the temple shifts to the future. It shifts to the future when Jesus the Messiah comes to dwell among us as God's presence. Or as the scripture says, not in a temple built with human hands, but in the temple of a human body. And Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. He is anticipated in chapter 2. So that's what we want to look at. So today, God uses Haggai, or Haggai. You can pronounce it any way you want to, but I go with Haggai. God uses Haggai to call his people back to his very presence, first in the rebuilt temple and ultimately in the fullness of his presence with us in Jesus Messiah. God calling his people back first to rebuild this temple in the day of Haggai and ultimately to look to the fullness of his presence with us in Jesus. So just two parts here. God with us, first of all, looking at Haggai and what is the, what is the second temple. And then secondly here, God with us, who is Jesus and really in a sense the future temple in, in life with him. So God with us. Let's look at God with us, Haggai in the second temple. We need a little bit of history. These are some of the, the pieces of paper that we've laid out across the front here. And I laid them on the floor just so we can kind of get this slice of history. It's after the United Kingdom that falls apart when uh, Solomon finishes his reign. And we're in the divided kingdom now. The North Kingdom has long been uh, destroyed by the Assyrians and wiped off the face of the earth. The Southern Kingdom of Judah uh, was defeated in 587 BC. That's what we looked at last week when we were in Habakkuk. And then they've gone into this Babylonian exile uh, for 70 years. And during that time, Babylon's defeated and the Persians take over. And somewhere during that exile period, the, the, the Jews are allowed to go back. There's a decree from Cyrus the king of Persia to allow them to go back. And it enters that period then called the Restoration. And as they come back, they're being given permission now to rebuild the temple. It's the second temple. The first temple was the one built by Solomon nearly uh, about the 10th century be- before Christ. 
But that's the temple that was destroyed in 587 when, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so now with this return to the land uh, in this restoration period, they're building the second temple, the one that was still standing at Jesus' time, the one that was added on to and embellished and, and, and beautified uh, right around the time of Christ under the reign of King Herod. And then that second temple was destroyed in 70 AD with the Roman invasion of, of Jerusalem. And the temple's never been rebuilt since then. But more important as we talk about this temple in Jerusalem, it's really, it's more than a house. It's more than a house. And so we want to look a little bit at what Haggai is doing here about this, saying about this unfinished project and its consequences. Long before the first temple, back in the earliest days of the children of Israel, God longed to be with his people. He created us for a relationship with him. The living God made himself known over and over again. And after Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt uh, in the wilderness, God instructed them to build the tabernacle, which was, was really a tent. And it was a tent of worship, but it was more than a worship space. It was actually uh, the presence of God was in the tabernacle, the very real presence of God. Now, God was still present everywhere, but in a sense, he was more present in the tabernacle than anywhere else. And it was more than a worship place. It did not contain God, but it, uh, but it, it expressed his presence with his people. It was their life. It was the center of their community. It was who they were. It identified them as the, the people of God, the people of the living God. And this tabernacle traveled around them in the wilderness. It traveled across the Jordan River when Joshua entered and took the land. It stayed in different places in Shechem and other places during those couple hundred years of the judges until finally King David had this plan to build it and God said, you will not build it as part of your discipline, but your son Solomon will. And Solomon finally gives it this permanent location on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We fast forward into this period of reconstruction, of rebuilding. It started and then it stopped. The people who had come back for this time of restoration, this time of building, had, had begun the work. They'd laid the foundation. But the work got the attention of some of their neighbor nations and others who had moved in the land while they were gone. And they feared sort of the political and religious implications of a rebuilt, a rebuilt temple in a thriving Jewish state. And these neighboring nations put on pressure to stop the building. The Jews initially tried to stop, to fight back, but eventually they lost interest, they became discouraged, and they turned attention to their new life, to their work, to picking out new paneling for their homes. They lost interest. And not only did they lose interest in the house, but they turned their attention from the things of God. That's what's going on in this first chapter of Haggai. And then God began to withhold and limit crops and rain and and add financial stress to the people. And they didn't really notice until he began to speak to them through prophets like Haggai. Prophets, in a sense, were attention getters. And in a sense, God is saying here, now that I've got your attention... Let me call you to repentance and to engage with this project. As we move on in chapter 1, we see that the people did, in fact, respond. They listened and they repented. The word repentance is not used, uh, but in verse 12 it says this, that the king and the high priest and the, the whole remnant of the people, the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their Lord and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So this obedience sounds like repentance. It sounds like response, doesn't it? 
And then in verses 14 and 15, it says, They came and began to work on the house of the Lord, Almighty their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. And newer translations will tell you it was September 21st. (laughs) They started on September 21st to build the house of the Lord. So theirs was not just a a verbal repentance, like, oh yeah, we're sorry. Like children learn to say, you know, uh, I'm sorry. Like that covers everything up. It was, a, it was a repentance that involved some actions. They took action. They, they, they went with follow-through. They became engaged with the project and with the very work of God. And it became more than a building project. It became a spiritual renewal. It became a revival among the people of God. And the reminder of that comes in a powerful four-word phrase that is noted twice in this little book. In one thirteen and two four. I am with you. Verse 13 of chapter 1, right in between these verses about the repenting and starting the work, right in between them, God says, I am with you. It comes to them as a promise. It comes to them as a a truth, a reality. It comes to them of the uniqueness of the one and only living God who comes to dwell among his people, of God who does not just leave us on our own on this earth to try to figure things out. A God here who, yes, who who disciplines. Yes, a God who hates sin, but a God who never abandons his people, even as he calls them to repentance and faith. In the midst of all of this, I am with you. And a few, for a few verses later in chapter 2, about four weeks later, again, a guy has very specific dates mentioned here. It's October 17th, actually. <laughs> as they are working, God speaks through Haggai, Again, and again, he encourages them with reminders of the old temple, a few around still to remember it, and then again, reassuring with his presence, says, I am with you. On the 21st day of the seventh month, October 17th, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, who is the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, ask them, who of you is le- who is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. It comes again. Not all that doomy at all for a prophet. Rather, reassuring, rather inspiring. There's this familiar cycle of sin and then a prophet comes and calls people back. There's repentance. There's restoration and worship. It's a little unique of a story because the people actually listened and did what God asked them to do. But this seems to have this more specific additional element of of relationship and, and presence. This, I am with you. I am with you. The people had forgotten God. They had forgotten to keep him at the center. They hadn't just slacked up building the temple. They had forgotten the God of the temple. But now they have come back. And here at chapter 2, verse 5, it seems like a good place to wrap up this nice story. In fact, some biblical scholars I learned this week, as I was reading, have questioned over the years the inclusion of a guy in the Bible because of this. It's just a simple one-theme story about a physical rebuilding of the temple. Why should this be included? Well, it's included because there's more. There's the rest of chapter 2, actually. I don't know if they didn't notice that as Bible scholars. Sometimes they think they're smarter than I am, and sometimes I'm not so sure. (laughs) But seriously, through Haggai, 
God is also here giving a glimpse of the future and his presence there. In fact, if we look closely enough, we find Jesus here, though not by name, he's here. And so we look now at God with us, Jesus in the future temple. Many of you are familiar with the great oratorio choral work by George Frederick Handel called The Messiah. It's all scripture, all King James scripture, and you can read it. And, and the most familiar, if you haven't heard any of the rest of it, you've probably heard the Hallelujah Chorus. If not live and in person, you've heard it uh, reworded for a commercial for something or whatever. But the Hallelujah Chorus is, is so well known. Other familiar choruses are, For unto us a child is born, a, child, a son is given. But some of you who are more familiar with the whole work might recognize Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Let me read it from the King James because that's how it's sung. For thus, I'm not going to sing it. I'm gonna think, some of you are going to think how it goes. It's a, it's a very difficult line to sing, actually. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens. And that word shake goes on. Shake. It goes on and on and on the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. It's a quick summary, really, of what some of the other minor prophets have given us. That the, the day of the Lord will come. There will come this time. There will come this time of judgment. We saw that in Zephaniah last week, the day of the Lord. And then there will be the appearing of the Messiah to set up his eternal kingdom. I suppose we could call it then an unshakable kingdom into which the desire of nations shall come. The shaking is is the judgment, of course, that comes in order that precedes the time of the coming of the Messiah. But then it says the desire of all nations. It's a phrase that can be interpreted in many ways as the eternal kingdom. The desire of all nations is the peace that will come. The desire of all nations is that there will be an end of warfare. And it uses that word nations of ethnos, all nations, not just the children of Israel, but all nations of of getting along in a beautifully multicolor kingdom. That's the desire of the nations. And it is all those things, but also over the years of prophecy and waiting, it came to be identified more and more as a name for the promised Messiah the desire of nations. In fact, it shows up in another song that we often sing. In fact, we always sing it in the Advent season because it's a favorite of our Advent songs. O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's several verses for it. The four that we have in our own hymnal speak of these four different names of God. O come, O come, Emmanuel, which we learn in Scripture means God with us. And the second verse is, O come, O come, O wisdom from on high, is another name given to the Messiah. O come, thou dayspring, from come and cheer by thy presence here. And the fourth verse, O come, desire of nations bind. In hearts, in one, the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease And be yourself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, desire of nations. I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the nations will come, 
and the desire of nations will come. And Haggai goes there too in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. In this place it will grant peace. Come, desire of nations, bind and won the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself the king of peace. And through Haggai, the prop, God says, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> and of course, that future temple, that place of glory and presence is not a building. It's not a building in the future kingdom. It's not a temple built with human hands, but it is a temple of the human body. Jesus says in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, 2, 19 through 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and he's standing next to the physical temple, the second temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they, his opponents, replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But John clarifies and says, of course, that the temple he had spoken of was his body. We now no longer enter into a temple of wood and stone to meet with God. God has entered into a temple of flesh and blood to meet with us. Fellowship has been restored in Christ. This big and resounding promise of Haggai, I am with you, is decisively fulfilled. And the final promise of Jesus to his followers is this very thing. Jesus says it at the very end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One more quick note about Haggai. Similar to other passages on our future hope in the Old Testament, New Testament. He calls people to to live into that hope, to continue to work and keep God at the center. And there's a phrase that's repeated four different times in this short little two-chapter book. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. It's like he's saying with his hope before you, meanwhile, stay engaged in holy living and give careful thought to your ways. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, he says this as he gets their attention about the neglect of God's house. Think about it, he says. Give careful thought to your ways that have gone the wrong direction. And then we get over later into chapter 2, And he says it again, but he's calling their attention to the new temple they have built and all that it means. And he calls attention to their life, their behavior, and their devotion. Never forget again, he says, give careful thought to your ways. Don't forget, he says, I am with you. And he was and he is. I haven't said much about Zerubbabel other than his name's kind of fun to say. He was the governor of Judah, sort of of the leader, the king at that time. He was appointed by King Cyrus of Persia to go back and give leadership to this time of restoration. He's the one that leads the repentant response, the work on the temple. But one more important thing about him that's not mentioned here by Haggai, but he is a descendant of King David and therefore in the ancestry of Jesus himself. Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel the one who rebuilds the physical second temple during the period of restoration, also is one who anticipates 
the desire of the nations to come. Jesus. What God, what might God be calling you to give careful attention to? Give careful thought to your ways, he says. What might we be focusing on just a bit too much to the neglect of God's presence? You might just be feeling really guilty about your obsession with your house from when I started the sermon. I didn't mean to do that. But, but seriously, what are the things that take our attention to the neglect of the things of God? And then I think also the work that we can do as we... As we Ask God to, to reveal those things to us is then to seek what, what can we do about that? What, what are the spiritual practices that just, just might help me experience and get Jesus back at the center, get myself back with my focus on the, the temple of who he is? What are the spiritual practices that might help me just be more fully engaged with God and with his holy purposes? Sometimes it's simply sitting in silence and speaking one word or a short phrase or what I would call a breath prayer of Jesus be the center. Simply his name sometimes or simply a a simple word of confession and a word of promise before him. It might be to make it a practice to gradually read through one of the four gospels or all of them, not in a race, not in a time limit, but taking time each day to read the gospel and say, where is Jesus here and how is he calling me to follow more closely? Or to take time with a passage of scripture and not just read it, but read it not just once, but maybe twice and maybe three times. Of listening for just a simple word or phrase the first time. And then listening, looking for a certain image perhaps the second time. And then actually listening to God's prompting to take some action the third time. These are all simple spiritual practices where we just need to mark out a little bit of time and say, Lord, I think I've been paying too much attention to other things. Show me your presence now as I come to you in your word. It might be a prayer of sort of an examination at the end of the day or the end of the week and say, where was God present Where did I respond well and where did I ignore it? Just sort of doing a little bit of a checklist on ourselves. Not to beat ourselves up with the goal of drawing closer. There's so many ways to do that. But I think the simple words in this little prophet are the presence of God. And sometimes the simple but very powerful things we can do to get ourselves back into his presence and to be ready to be more aligned with his holy purposes. Give careful thought to your ways. I am with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you that even in this book that um, seemed to be more historical detail and narrative, your presence and your power comes through. We thank you that we live in an age, Lord Jesus, when we can know you and engage with you and experience what it is like to be in your presence. Thank you also for this future hope when all nations will be gathered with you and the fullness of all of our desires will be met in you. We give ourselves, Lord, in great thanks and praise. Amen.